Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're going to have guy talk or guys who talk and that's going to start right now. So we want to know what your questions might be or what topics you might like us to talk about. We're also open to topics. Maybe you've got a topic. We'll be taking that at 877-933-2484. Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastors Tom Brock and Tom Parrish are the power panel today. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey, Hi, Bill. Hi, everybody. Yeah. Really nice uh, response. I appreciate you guys being here and your faithfulness to the show. I know listeners always have great questions, and today should be no exception. Sounds good. Looking forward yeah. to it. Let's talk a little bit about, to get things started, about when we hear uh, verses like, uh, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. What does doing good mean? In the biblical context, doing good is certainly what many people would say is helping your neighbor, caring for others. But from a Christian perspective, doing good takes on an added dimension is that we're also doing it for Jesus. So we're doing it for the Lord and we're doing it for our neighbor because of the love Jesus has shown us. And the thing I like about that concept of doing good, and I've watched Christians do it, uh, literally live that out, they will sacrifice for other people. I mean, most of us are very good at giving up to a certain point until it hurts, where I see people that do what I would call real good go beyond what they can even afford, but they're doing it because they're in love with Jesus and because he, in turn, has given them a love for their neighbor. Yeah, I love that. Maybe, I don't know about what good is always entirely for sure, but I do know that uh, what's interesting about the biblical witness is that good is something that plays itself out. We judge things by their fruit. A a good tree bears good fruit. And so I think if you think of those contexts of maybe the words that we say or the actions that we do, um, the internal character that we carry, like how does that play itself out in the future? Because what we do doesn't just end in that moment, right? It it continues to carry forward. So I think about, I I can think of times, uh, significant times in my life as an 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old where maybe somebody said some good words to me, right? Like like the the blessing of a tongue that, that can be present. That still plays itself out in my life, you know, some 30-odd years later, where good carries itself forward into the future, and it really impacts the journey of people moving forward that way. So it's one way to think about good is not just a moral command that we're supposed to do, but how our actions continue to live out and play themselves out in the future. I like that. I have a daily devotional book where you read one page a day. Uh, It's from Martin Luther 500 years ago, and this morning's was on this, and he said, make sure you're born again before you do good. I love and, that. and his point was, if you do good and you're not born again, it, it's it's not good. And you know the verse from Romans, is it 13? Whatever does not proceed, or 12? Whatever does not <laughs> proceed from faith is sin. <laughs> so Luther's point was that you know a lot of people are doing good because they're trying to earn the way into the kingdom. No, uh, that's not going to work. You're, you're born again first, and then you do good, and mm-hmm. then that'll count. Luke. 627 says in the ESV, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. 
that's quite a verse. It is. I mean, I don't, you, you have to be anchored in something different to be able to do that. If, you, if you're I anchored agree. in petty jealousy or competition or, or feeling a sense of power or whatever it happens to be, you have to be seeking the goodwill of another person and be able to look past their actions or attitudes or whatever is going on to the, to the possibility of hope in the future. So you think about, you know, what Jesus endured in the present. It says for the hope that was before him, he endured the cross. Like he could see another side of it. So he was willing to go through the pain and the sorrow on behalf of other people on that. So I, I think it's pretty challenging to see everybody around us in the world as potential bearers of the kingdom, however lost they might be. But I think if we can't see people in that way, then I don't know how that we can love them well or pray for them as they persecute or bless those that curse. You, you have to be able to see beyond the presenting issue to be able to, I think, have the eyes of the kingdom in that way. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. Jesus claims only God is good, but Jesus himself calls himself the good shepherd. One and, the, one and the same. Therefore, the Jesus end. claims to be God. Well, of course. And, of course. And some people look at the verse where, good master, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And they think, well, wait a minute, isn't Jesus God? Is he claiming then that he's not God? No. But this questioner has no idea that Jesus is God in the right. flesh. Nobody knows that at this point, even the disciples. And so uh, no one is good, but God alone is true. Jesus is God, but uh, he didn't know that yet. See, I think worldly definition of good and biblical definition of good are two different things altogether. If we define it like a philanthropist, um, I've just been watching this series on on uh, all the great philanthropists at the turn of the 20th century, and they give millions and millions of dollars away. Well, that's all well and good. But the point is, what good is it after a certain point? It doesn't bring them any closer to the Lord. It doesn't bring them any closer to the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't bring them any closer to, you know, conscience issues. The good we're talking about is where we, first of all, stand before Jesus and admit who we are, and then he empowers us with his good because most of the good that I think we're called to do, my human eye can't see it. Yeah. I need to have a, a, almost a revelation to see into somebody's life and say, I've got to do something there. Forgiving my enemies? You know, you would think of the ministry, you never have enemies. Well, you do, unfortunately. There are some very nasty people out there. And the first 10 years of walking with Jesus and trying to be a pastor, I didn't want to forgive those people for nothing. I was I was a James and John. Can't we call down a little fire from heaven? <laughs> and then it began. Then then my oldest son began to give us trouble, mm-hmm. and I finally realized that I'm going to love him no matter what he does. And that's how Jesus feels about mm-hmm. these people. And the moment that dawned on me, not that I I don't do this perfectly. Believe me, guys, I still struggle with this, but I don't find myself cursing them or wanting to destroy these people. I find myself saying, how can they be redeemed? And Lord, what would you have me do in the process? And sometimes he uses me, sometimes he doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we really want to dig into this concept of good, and I appreciate what you said in there too, Parish, about we're empowered to do the good, right? At the end of the day. But one of the, the biblical principles about how to interpret the scripture is where does a word show up for the first time? Because if you look at the where that word shows up for the first time, it gives you a sense of how to think about it for the rest of the text. And actually that word good shows up a little over 500 times in the Old Testament, a little over 200 times in the New. But it starts in Genesis 1. 203. Is that what it is? Yes, yes indeed. And it, and it starts in, in uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> but it starts in Genesis 1. And what's interesting about it is that it, it when God finishes a day of creation, he doesn't declare it good as if it's a value judgment. He says that, it, and God saw that it was good. And when if you really want to get inside of like the insider Hebrew baseball of this whole thing, 
Um, Hebrew is a verb-based language, and so it means that it's always moving, it's always developing, it's always going outward. And so at the end of each day of creation, you can think about it in terms of God created that which was exactly his intention. Mm-hmm. And so good in that setting is exactly God intended reality, the way he has meant things to be and to keep playing themselves out in the future. They'll just keep going and going and going. So good is sort of this active verb-based kind of thing that God put everything in place the way it's intended to be. And as we live within his good, as we're empowered to do his good, as his imagers on earth, we're living within that good. But good shows up the first time and it is God's intended reality meant to keep going outward in sort of this verby kind of way to subdue and fill the earth. It's a pretty fascinating concept yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. And you know, the, the the caller's a quote of Jesus saying, love your enemies. And I, I think this is from God. I'm not bragging on this. I don't, there's not anybody that I know in my life who has really hurt me that I want that person to spend eternity in hell. Mm. That's just not in me. And I think that's the Lord. But boy, you watch some of these, you know, newscasts and here's somebody whose sister has been killed and she gets to get up and, and say her piece. And, you know, I hope you burn in hell. Yeah. And I can understand people's anger, et cetera. But I don't know. Once you know you're a sinner who deserves hell. You don't want anybody to go in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And Paul says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And I think we're talking about uh, moral excellence, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we are. I think just again to nuance that a little bit different. If we just said that good was sort of this unfolding God intended reality that keeps going outward, evil by contrast is defined by all that stands in the way of God's unfolding good. And so I think sometimes we get stuck believing that God is sort of this moral cop in the sky that's always like judging this, 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 this on a one-time basis. But if you think about something like lying, like if you're living in a healthy relationship, it's meant to keep unfolding and sort of intimacy and beauty and honesty and wonder and joy and all of those things. But if you introduce deceit into that, it actually cuts off that ongoing process of intimacy and joy and delight because now it's introduced uh, mistrust into it. It's it's it, suspicion, all of these words that cut off your ability to grow in your relationship with another person. So I think it's, I think we underestimate the beauty of good, but I think we also underestimate the power of sin because it cuts off God's unfolding reality. We can't live in that anymore. So it's different than God keeping this moral command list. It's like, how will your life keep unfolding? If you're living within evil, you can't live within God's good at the same time. And that's why forgiveness is so needed in those places. I've sat with a lot of couples that want to get married. Deeply in love. Oh, my goodness. Are these people in love? And when she can say anything, he just loves it. You know, and and it doesn't matter that, you know, she can't cook and he can't change the oil in the car. And they just love each other. That's good for about six months. Right. And then after six months, when I see them again, then they're starting to have issues. (laughs) Now, here's the key. The Lord meant everything you created for good, marriage included. We wind up, you know, distorting it, sinning in it, living selfishly. Now, the only real reality is, are we going to let Jesus live through us and forgive one another and truly show goodness to one another, or are we going to go to our old way of life? And I remember I had a woman sitting in my office, 35 years old, an absolutely beautiful woman, and she came to me for counseling. She's heard I was a good counselor, and she said, I'm divorcing my fifth husband. What's wrong with these men? (laughs) (laughs) The point point is, it doesn't matter if it's male or female saying that. If you can't forgive and you can't honestly admit what you're doing wrong— you will never have a healthy relationship, and that's exactly what Jesus wants, and that's why creation is good. Yeah. Guy Talk or Guys That Talk, let me know what your questions are, 877-933-2484. Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Dr. Peter Kapsner is the panel at hand. Again, 877-933-2484.
Guide Talk. We're glad you're joining us today. We've got some great questions coming in. Elisa wants to know, what was the process that made the books get into the Bible? Why did some books not make it into the Bible? And is it important to read those books too? Mm. That's a great question. Yeah, Lisa. it is. Yeah, I, a little bit of data on that. I mean, the the books that we have in the Bible that are called the canon of Scripture, the the sixty, the twenty nine of the new, and the and the what is that, thirty seven of the old? I believe. Two hundred and three. Right? Yeah, two hundred and three exactly. <laughs> so the sixty six that are there now. They weren't decided on until um, in the 300s, Athanasius was one of the church fathers who suggested that this should be the list of scripture that made it in there. But there was a lot of lists that they were debating about, to Lisa's point, and there's a lot of other books that did not make it in to the scriptures. Some of the main criteria Mm -hmm. uh, had to do with whether, especially in the New Testament, whether the author was an actual disciple of Jesus mm-hmm. or a close eyewitness of the events of Jesus was one of the main criteria yep. that would make it through. Um, whether the message of those books transcended sort of context and time. And there's a few other pieces of criteria like that. The authenticity of the author. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people mm-hmm. that claim to be mm-hmm. a certain person that didn't, that weren't actually that kind of person. So I, I think maybe, and then you guys jump in too. The other part of this is then the Apocrypha, right? Like I grew up with the Catholic scriptures sure. on my grandma's bedside table, and there was um, about seven-ish books that were part of the Apocrypha mm-hmm. that were seen as very much edifying, mm-hmm. if not inspired, uh, whether we should read them, see them in the same way. If, there's people that have different views on that, but clearly in the Protestant faith, they aren't part of the um, the canonical books mm-hmm. of scripture. But first Maccabees, second Maccabees are pretty interesting to read. It gives you a little take on some of the quiet time between the end of Malachi and, and the onset of the star of Bethlehem. There's about 400 years there, and Maccabees fills in some of those gaps historically. So it's pretty interesting, but they're not considered inspired, at least in most traditions. And, you know, if, for instance, the Gospel of Thomas, right? why didn't that make it in? And sometimes you have people that are argumentative and, well, a bunch of men chose the books in, in 300 or whatever and threw out the books that were pro-women or something like right. that. Well, you look at the Gospel of Thomas, and there was a heresy way back then called Gnosticism. Uh, and if you read the Gospel of Thomas, it's a whole different Jesus. Where it is. Jesus is doing things like taking a rock and throwing it in the air and turning it into a bird or cursing his little friends and, and you know, just a whole different Jesus. So you read Matthew, <laughs> Mark, Luke, and John, it's pretty obviously the same person. But these Gnostic Gospels and some of the false teachings were pretty... It's not like they they had to decide too much, I don't think. The, the Scriptures were the Scriptures from the beginning. It got, shall we say, certified, authenticated right. in the 300s. But, yeah. Yeah, and then wasn't it, uh, was it 79 AD in Antioch? Where the uh, Old Testament was can you know solidified the thirty nine mm-hmm. books okay yeah so there's the you have this process going on and I believe it was all by the Lord's timing because what we have is that with the destruction of Jerusalem in seventy A D and the temple and the Jews being scattered around the world and the gospel going out it's kind of like that as we understand that time period it technically ended in one sense the Pharisees the Sadducees you don't hear about them after the first century they don't exist anymore in the sense because there's no temple. But what you do have is the gospel message going out, and the early church had these letters from Paul and others. The ones from Thomas and others, many believe those are third, fourth century writings, and you don't find them in the early church writings, so they were not brought in right away. But that goes to show there's been false teaching in the church since the beginning. For sure. I mean, think of it. Jesus had a little church of 12 people. One of them was Judas. 
And even at the very beginning of Christianity, there were false teachers. That's why Paul had to write a lot of his letters, was to counter the false teaching. Yeah, and I mean, it is interesting to look at some of those other pieces of literature. Again, right, the extra-biblical or outside-the-biblical literature, like the Book of Enoch. I I know that the Book of Jude, for example, I believe pulls from some of the stories of the Book Mm -hmm. of Enoch, right, in terms of of Satan and, and the archangel fighting over the body of Moses. Some of these things begin to make more sense when you look at some of the other scriptural witnesses, and you, maybe you guys can comment on this with your background, but Martin Luther is one of my very favorite figures uh, of theological history, but he wanted to chuck out a few books of the scripture well, at some point. He wanted to throw out Revelation and Hebrews and Jude and James because they didn't have the explicit message of justification by faith within them. Now, his fathers are like, dude, we love the Reformation that you're doing right now, but that might be a step too far. So it didn't end up actually getting chucked out of the text, but he did suggested that at one point in time. And, and I could be wrong on this. But I think later in life, Luther changed. I think he modified that. I think he modified that. But yeah, some he called the Epistle of James an Epistle of Straw, and he <laughs> and didn't it, like it. And if you're a guy banging theses on a door, I mean, you're a bit of a loose cannon anyway, right? So <laughs> yeah, we, we really love was. this. Yeah, we love he this was guy. The he was bull in the china he closet. Was. <laughs> All right, Matthew chapter twenty-seven, verse fifty-one plus, and that would go something like this: Would you discuss this passage, particularly the verse? about the saints who had fallen asleep, were raised and came out of tombs mm-hmm. and Love appeared to many, etc. It seems like a pretty amazing event, yet there's only one or two sentences about it in the Bible. It's only noted in Matthew, not the other Gospels. I rarely hear a sermon on this. God included it in the Bible for a reason. What do you make of all that? Thanks. <laughs> you know, that, that verse from Matthew, where after Jesus rose from the dead, some of the Old Testament dead saints... Uh, got out of there, or didn't say Old Testament, did it? Just some of the saints in Jerusalem rose from the dead, walked around, yeah. died again. And what on earth? It's not in, it's in Matthew. It's not in Mark or Luke or John. And just, I, I'm preaching at my old church this Sunday. And when I was 40 years ago, when I came to that church, there was an old white-haired pastor, Maynard Force. Mm-hmm. And here's what he said. He said, when I'm reading through the Bible, and I come across a difficult verse. I look at it, I study it, and then I tip my hat to it, walk around it, and move on. <laughs> and I, but what I'm going to preach on Sunday is, and I do that too, but I'm going to urge people to get the ESV Study Bible mm-hmm. that has good footnotes at the bottom of each page that explain the hard verses and the two or three possible interpretations. Uh, that one, it just says it, and I'm glad it says it. It's amazing, but it doesn't explain it much. It just says it happened. Yeah. Do, you, so. do you have some notes in your ESV Study Bible there, Parish? I do, actually. Uh, this, this is really too. exciting. It, I'm curious what this just, passage is about. It isn't just Tom Bronk. We have them here as well. <laughs> and, oh. you know, as I, I look at this. Of course, it talks about the temple, the curtain of the temple being torn into. Right. So the Holy of Holies was exposed, which most of us don't think about. Now, growing up Jewish and understanding for a Jew of that era what that would have meant, you know, that was that was horrible that that would happen. And yet Jesus tore down literally that curtain through his death and resurrection, and uh, the earth shook. What you have here is you, you see the whole creation responding mm. to the work of Jesus and his power. And even the dead, he is the author of the living and the dead. Even the dead are raised as a result of his you know, death and resurrection. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting uh, statements here that give us an understanding of the power of Jesus, the power of the Word, and the fact that uh, these events, I believe, readily happened. I, whether these people lived on for another 20 years, I have no idea. But I know 
that uh, it had an impact on the early church. Yeah, one of the things that I really, and I sympathize with the listener's question because I think about it for my own life and and how sometimes thin and lame my view of, of scriptures is and just in the sense of how little I know about it. But if I start with the basic premise, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for training and rebuking and correcting and all of that in righteousness, right? So we're going to say that all scripture is that. Yep then how did we end up with some of the scripture passages that we do that are sort of God-breathed on steroids? You know, what, why, why does everybody know John 3.16? Why does everybody know Romans 3.20? Like, why do we rip these out, and, and why do we sort of give them this place of primacy? Can you imagine if you just rewrote the script and young children were growing up and what you just read about people coming out of the what what if that were the verses that a church had been oriented around for me? I'm not suggesting that we do, <laughs> but as soon as I start thinking about that, I think, huh, you know, I have a pretty thin and probably pretty lame view of the kingdom when it's been reduced down to maybe 10 verses that might have been ripped out of Scripture and possibly even misused, certainly um, given precedence over other verses. I want to know the whole Scriptures because I'm going to probably know a lot more about the kingdom than I don't currently know at this point in time. It's fascinating to me. And you're absolutely right, and I encourage what you're saying for everybody. You have whole groups of Christians, well, whole groups, not large groups, but enough, that handle snakes because of Matthew, Mark, uh, 16, where it talks about handling snakes, some will drink deadly poison. The the scriptures are never advising us to do these things. But some preacher, some teacher of the word got stuck on that and kept preaching it over and over through generations. And suddenly it became the norm of the church. I think John 3, 16, Romans 8, 28, all things were together. We love to go to those passages that make us feel good. Right. We don't want to go to those passages that tell us what a wretch we can be and how sinful we can be and how we need to forgive even our enemies. I don't want to hear that, Lord. I want to hear the good stuff. (laughs) And so we gravitate to that. To to me, the most misquoted verse in the Bible is, judge not lest ye be judged. Mm -hmm. And a a close second is, God is love. Mm. And people use those two verses to say, don't you tell me that anything I am doing is wrong. Mm. God is love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think what I love about this conversation, too, is that I sometimes will ask my students, so how many of you know John 3.16? And, you know, of course, the majority of them raise their hands. And then I ask, so how many of you know the verse John 3.14? Just let's keep this in context for a second. And very few of the students, if any, actually will raise their hands where it says, just as the serpent was raised in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will have to be raised. And it talks about he who believes will cross over from death to life, all of that. And so we talk about Jesus's self-understanding about going to the cross was directly related to the serpents in the wilderness and, and what was going on at that time. So maybe we should look at that story and it'll help us understand the cross much more clearly. Very interesting. Let's take a little break. When we come back, lots more guide talk or guys that talk. 877-933-2484 is the text line. We'd like to hear from you. Again, 877-933-2484. The power panel is Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastors Tom Brock, and Pastor Tom Parrish. We'll be right back. guys here for guide talk or guys that talk which would be these guys here in the studio 
Tom, Tom, and Peter. It's a good team. It's a good squad. Great questions coming in. Mike wants to know, great show as always, guys. I'm wondering why we call Jesus the Son of Man. I know him. I know he is the Son of God. Thanks. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man. True. The, you know, the Philippians passage, that he, being fully who he was, he emptied himself too. and became yep. fully human as well. Yep. And so you have that terminology there. Now, that shows up a lot in the book of Daniel and shows up elsewhere in the Old Testament, the Son of Man. And I think it's a precursor to what we understand as the Messiah in some form. So Jesus knew those scriptures, and he identified himself that way. And I'm sure some of the people would have gotten that when he said Son of Man. But you get to the 21st century, and we read it, we kind of scratch our head. And, you know, I was just thinking about this today. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And when I was sitting in class at Bethel University many years ago, and the professor taught that Jesus at age two did not know trigonometry. I thought, well, wait a minute. Of course he knew trigonometry. He's God. But you know what? He didn't. It's, it <laughs> says in Luke chapter two, is it? Jesus grew yeah. in knowledge. He Wisdom emptied himself, it says. Yeah. 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 And so he's fully God, uh, but he's also fully man, and he limited himself, Philippians 2. I love that. Wondering if Jesus was doing trig homework, going, oh, why, did, why did I come up with this? <laughs> that I can see. He would be a high priest that sympathizes yes. with my weakness. That, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> that's a great question. We wanted to know when Jacob wrestled the angel, how did he know the angel could or would bless him when he said, I won't let you go until you bless me? Great question. Doesn't say. No, it doesn't say. I mean, that would fall into, and anything that we might say about that would fall into the category of, of sort of the ancient Jewish practice of midrash, where you're you're yeah. kicking around the questions of the text that the text is not prepared to answer. So it doesn't mean it's not fun to wonder about. Yeah. But There's but I think it's one of those fun to wonder about. Oh, a ton it? of things. It's yeah. like where did the other people come from after Adam and Eve that Cain was scared about? You know, when he went out into the world at that point in time. So there, and 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 rabbis actually, if people want to look into it. Look up the word midrash and just Google it, and, and you can find midrash-like texts where ancient rabbis kick around a lot of these kind of questions, and it's fascinating. But, but this is not something to become dogmatic about. And no. what we need to be careful, my pet peeve is when especially a preacher will take something that's not in the text and right. say, well, of course you know what that meant was that he knew deep down that the angel was not was going to bless him oh, if he man. held on far hard. No, it and doesn't then you apply, say And then you that. apply that, I know, yeah. I know. That's just, yeah. So just be careful. Totally. Mm-hmm. All right, here's another great question. I was wondering what the favorite Old Testament character is and why, uh, and, and of each guy here on the panel, mm-hmm. except oh, the host. Wow. Except the- <laughs> did he say that? Wow. Did he a solid that, exemption. No, 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 I added that. Are you misreading scripture over there again, no, Bill? No, yeah. We that. need to include you. Well, no, you I need to be part of this. Right. I want my guest to speak. All right. <laughs> For me, the Old Testament, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, gosh, you took it, mine. I'm sorry. That's fine. In, in the book of Daniel, because when Nebuchadnezzar says you got to bow down, I, I love it. And I've heard so many times people preach on, and they said, our God will save us. We will not bow down to you. But it's the second half of the verse that absolutely blows me away. Mm-hmm. But hear this, O king, even if our God does not save us, we will not bow down to you or worship you. And that's the kind of, of uh, you know, faith that I really want. I think all of us do. And those three epitomize that for me in the Old Testament. Well, since you took mine, I'll, I'll at least go to to the, the, the second of that. I, I think Noah definitely stands out for me. I really, I love the idea that 
he was building and, and doing something absolutely insane that the sort of the, the common culture around him was questioning and was sarcastic about it. I have become ever skeptical of the herd as it were, whether whether it's the social herd that's all going one direction and or whether it's the Christian herd going all one direction. And, and I think you can kind of play that out through history that wherever you see the herds running uh, is sociologically, it's almost always run the opposite direction. Hardly ever are the herds running in a way that's consistent with the kingdom. And so I, I've thought about that in light of Christian movements, um, some of them seemingly biblical-based that ultimately are not at the end of the day. I think about it often in social movements that uh, Noah was definitely not running with the herd. He was listening to God's voice and willing to take the hit in the midst of that. But in so doing, he participated in a beautiful new creation that came about as a result. Now, Ken Ham does not send me any money from the Ark down in Kentucky, <laughs> but I would advise you, go see it. I've heard because it's when I came up, the, well, you go up a hill in a, in a bus. They take you from the lower slot. When we turned, my wife and I sat there, and I looked over at her, and she had tears running down her eyes, and I did too. It was so overwhelming mm. to see this full-size ark, which I had grown up with and read about and knew about in Scripture, and then to see something that was a facsimile, it was astounding. Mm. So if you get a chance, go. Love it. This might be a good time to bring up the fact that in the fall, uh, Peter and I are going to start our Wednesday series and this might be a nice time to announce it, Peter. Yeah, indeed. We're going to look at some of those characters in the Old Testament and, and have a lot of great guests that are going to be able to dig into them because I think we, we sort of know their stories maybe through flannel graphs or veggie tales or other kinds of stories like that, which is great. But I think when you actually get into their characters and you begin to see like Moses' men draw forth from the water, or Jonah means dove, and you get into their names and their function and what was really going on behind the scenes, I think it's going to be a really exciting study. We're going to talk about Old Testament prophets, kings, and people that we might not know much about, but we want to learn. David, Moses, Elijah, Jonah, Joshua, Samson. Very exciting. And it's going to be almost like a Sunday school series with lessons from the life of these characters. For sure. And uh, there's probably a a good portion of people that would really love to know more about them. Yeah. I mean, if if you said to me... Speak for uh, 90 seconds on Zephaniah, I might panic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Where, you know, And Melchizedek has come up on this program well, before, times. and I think yeah. it would be an incredible study to be able to do that. So, yeah. yeah. And the series is, uh, you know, we haven't really titled it yet. It's, I like this description of the Old Testament. It's, the Old Testament is like a fully furnished room dimly lit. Mm. Mm. I love that. It's all there. It's, we just don't <laughs> see it very well. Yeah, yeah. So in the fall, on Wednesdays, we're going to start tackling Old Testament characters and learning from that. So that'll be great. I'm looking forward to that. Indeed. And I have a help, helpful thing for your listeners on that. You know, most of us get intimidated by the names in the Old Testament. <laughs> I picked up a great Bible app. It's just called Bible Pronounce. It pronounces every name in the really? Old New Testament for yeah. me. And I look like a genius when I get up and read in front of the congregation because <laughs> oh, I can I, pronounce those names. For sure. I'm never dumber as a professor <laughs> than when I run across an Old Testament passage I can't read. That, that so. is why I love having Bible.is on my phone. Yeah, it's a good one. If I, it's a it's a free app where the Bible is read to you and I like to if I can't sleep I like to push the button and hear, you know, first kings and and when, so when I get up to do the scripture readings in a church I know how to say those yeah. names. Yeah. I mean that's a very secondary reason to do it. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> Another question that came in was <clears throat> regarding the notes, the ESV notes because these have been talked about several times. And the question, which I now can't find, had something to do with uh, how how much superior are these notes? I mean, I think she's got a Bible with um, NIV. Well, so it's superior. I don't know if they would be superior necessarily. And and uh, I had an interesting experience this last week for a class that I was writing where I was. Um, it's one of the lectures I was interviewing a New Testament scholar. I didn't know 
but going into the interview that she was one of the 10 people that served on the committee to write all the NIV study notes. And it was fascinating to talk to her. And she's like, well, this was probably my favorite note that we had a chance to read. And and by the time I was done talking with her, I felt like I literally was just totally immersed in the Pauline letters because that was her specialty. And so clearly those notes in the NIV study Bible, I have found them terribly helpful. Now you guys have interacted with the ESV study notes. I have more so than maybe. And so you could comment more on that, but I've heard they're amazing. The NIV study Bible is a good study Bible. Bible. The ESV study Bible is, I think, more thorough. Interesting. And will give you two or three views of a possibility. So I think it's, it's. I would I would lean toward the ESV yeah. study Bible. Right now, the ESV, I think, in that regard, is ahead of almost everybody. There's nothing wrong with the NIV. There's nothing wrong with the ESV, the other ones that are out there. The point is, research has caught up to the point where they have their hands on most of the information mm-hmm. that was not available even 10, 15, 20 years ago. And even new manuscripts that they're uncovering, and that's what makes it so impressive. Do you guys know about how the philosophy was at VSV, like how it's translated? Because like, if somebody has a New American Study Bible, they try to translate it the best they can, original language, word for word for word, whether or not it flows well, whether it's easy to understand. Right. They're trying to go word for word word, whereas the NIV is what's called yeah. dynamic equivalence, or they yes. try to do a, sort of a paraphrase of and capture <clears throat> the meaning of the thought going from one language to the next. Is the ESV more it's, it's word more, for word or dynamic equivalence? I think it's more NASB-like, it is. more Same. word by word, let's get this real literally what did it say? That's why I don't like the NIV mm-hmm. as much. They do a little schmoozing sometimes <laughs> to make it easier to understand. Yeah. I want to know exactly what was written. And for that, you go to the New American Standard Bible or the ESV. That's great. I finally found the question. Uh, Christy said, are the footnotes in the New Living T- uh, Testament, NLT Study Bible, yeah. different from ESV Study Bible? They'd I would be di- say they'd, they'd be, be different. different. They'd yeah. be different they'd for be sure. Different. Yeah. But I think, you know, when you look at such a, um, a dynamic equivalence translation, I mean, the, the New Living Translation is going to be like really paraphrased, right? It's, it's close to the message thing. But one of my favorite Bibles, and maybe you guys have had them too, would be the Parallel Bibles. So you have a very oh, much a, a word-for-word kind of translation sitting alongside. Four different versions. Exactly. I think yeah. it was like the yeah. NASB and the NIV and the Living Bible and one other one. I loved those Parallel Bibles. I mean, they were mm-hmm. like 6,000 pounds to carry mm-hmm. around, but mm-hmm. I certainly love those Bibles. I had translation New Testament. Eight different eight translations. I love it. I had one better. I was, yeah. Yeah, mine sorry. was 10. Yeah, we're just going to auction off. Yeah, exactly. One of the things for this lady who asked the question, she has an advantage that I didn't have when I went to seminary, or most of us didn't. She can go to the computer now. She can go on the yeah. web, and she can find commentaries from 50 different people on the same text. And sometimes it will designate, this is the NSV, this is over here in this one, and you have a chance to look at that. And I do that a lot. You know, even though I can read some of the languages, the original languages, I spend a lot of time getting the thinking of other people and seeing how that balances out. And if you want to go to a place like Google Books, so not just Google itself, but if you Google Google Books, then it'll take you into an entirely different search engine. And within Google Books, you can Google like commentary of Matthew. Yes. And it'll come up with maybe 20 actually published commentaries of Matthew that somebody at Google spent a lot of time scanning in to to all of these search engines. They don't ever have the full text there, but you can often get three or four or six chapters of a commentary just free right there. And if you have a verse you want to look at, Google Books, then going to that commentary is a really helpful place to go. I'll take a break from questions uh, just for a, a short attaboy moment. You ready for this?
Yes, yes, sir. yeah, yes. There are a lot of shows I enjoy on Faith Radio, but Guy Talk is my absolute favorite. I always learn so much and enjoy each contributor so very much. Thank you. Mm, well, kind, that's nice. thank that you. is really nice. Isn't that nice? Thank you. Yeah, really nice. All right, let's take a little break and we come back. I know there'll be more questions because I already see them coming in. 877-933-2484. The Power Panel is Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kapsner. Be right back. back with guy talk and the guys are doing a great job today i must say that you are all doing a really fine job we talk that's what you do guys who talk and that's the power panel tom Parrish, tom brock and peter kapsner here's a great question i have a question about tattoos i want to get the fish and the dove tattooed on my wrists so that the kids i work with in the public schools will ask questions i might not be able to approach them with my faith but they can approach me and i can speak freely what do you think about tattoos being used to spread the gospel? The kids I work with are 12 to 14 with behavioral issues, a lot of confusion, anxiety, and fear. Go ahead, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I just yeah, tapped it on. Capture. Yeah, you're where's covered, that attaboy covered. now? You're yeah. covered in ink, so oh, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> he isn't, by the way. Yeah, you can see the wings coming down my bicep right now. Uh, I, you know, this is on... Okay, so I'm just going to... Not to not to beg out, but this is on my list to research because the, the initial research, I'm very mixed on it. it obviously, mm-hmm. when people talk about uh, not marking yourselves, we're talking about some of the passages within Leviticus. And, right. um, and, and you can see it one of two ways. One is that people sometimes will look at the passages of Leviticus, and I think rightfully so, where the Hebrews were coming out of slavery, they had lost all sense of identity, they had forgotten who they were. Generationally, um, the reason why Pharaoh killed off the firstborn males and also kept them in slavery was knowing then that the male children were the carriers of the stories, the carriers of the rituals, the carriers of what make people a people, right? And he knew if he could take out those boys, that then he could subdue them and make them convinced convinced that they were Egyptian slaves and not actually God's chosen people. So they finally get rescued out of that. And God is reestablishing who they are as his chosen people with Mount Sinai and and the commandments and like who you're meant to be shining light. And so there's a series of commands within all of that, that other pagan religions were doing at the time. And so God was basically saying, don't do these things because you will get confused again and you will begin to blend in with the other religious traditions around you. You're still so young and so vulnerable as my people. So don't ink yourselves up basically because you're going to be doing what the pagan religions are doing and you're going to get confused. So that's one view on it, that this was a temporary restriction while they're trying to get a sense of their own uh, self. Now, the other view would be that the the words of um, Leviticus where these come up are, are in, a, in a series of passages where it's more of a, of a sort General. of a longstanding mm-hmm. command. Like right. this is something that's actually inconsistent with the kingdom. Right. And frankly, I don't know which side I land on on this one right now. I, I haven't, in fairness, done enough of the research. I just know those are the two views, but I think it's tricky from there about where to land. One of the things I've noticed now, uh, we go to a, a water park where you can walk like through a river. It's for old people. I go anyway, but it's, it's a lot of fun. I cannot get over the number of tattoos yeah. I see on people my age and younger. 
And I'm coming to the conclusion, and when I go into a restaurant, everybody's got a tattoo now. So I always ask the waiter or waitress, why would you get that tattoo? It opens a discussion. But I think for many people, it is symptomatic of the fact that people are looking for an identity. And whether it's an identity with a group, whether it's an identity with an idea, or whatever it may be, the tattoos become part of that. And in the Old Testament, the Lord only wanted the people to be identified with him. Nothing else along that line. Now, with the gentleman here wants to do this uh, Christian point of view. Woman, excuse yeah, me. That's all right. I, I don't think that this is the end of the world as she dies. I'm not. I don't right. think it's a, a, a sin one way or the other. I think though that it is a temporary symbol. You know, the real symbol has to be on her heart. The real symbol has to be on how she responds to those students day after day, or the people she works with. Um, whether that'll open up a door, I don't know. So yeah. I was having dinner with some friends and their young adult children, and we were talking about tattoos. And I and I said, well, you know. Whatever, but I just think they're ugly. And all of a sudden, it got rather quiet (laughs) because one or two of them had tattoos, Hmm. which were not visible anyway. But, you know, I I think what what you said, Peter, if I'm going to get a tattoo, what I'm going to do first, I'm going to go to that verse in Leviticus where it talks about not getting a tattoo or marking, however it's worded. I'm going to study the commentaries on it. And that, to me, is going to determine whether I get a tattoo or not. I don't think I get a tattoo as a witnessing tool. You can put a cross around your neck. That'll work. Sure. Uh, you know, or just uh, whatever. But that's my thought. True yeah. story. A friend of mine who's a pastor here in town, he has an adult son who's done mission work, done great things. His son just went out and got a tattoo in Greek that said faith alone. Mm. So he comes home and he says, Dad, look at my shoulder. And he looks at it and he says, oh, you spelled it wrong. <laughs> so we don't know what happened to that tattoo. Yeah. And I don't, know, I don't know if you guys remember the Cracker Jacks boxes, but I, I you'd always get you know oh, some yeah. little toy in yeah. there. I was all about the little press-on tattoos. I if I could get that, that on the yeah, Cracker Jacks box, you know, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That says a lot about you. Yeah. <laughs> simple man, Bill. Simple man. You. Yeah. 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 Peter was the end of that era. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this from Jerry, though. Nobody asked me my favorite character from the Old Testament is Daniel. Not only because of all the trials he faced faithfully, but the lesson learned when he was in the presence of the angel, his knees were so weak that he had to be strengthened. Mm. Reminds me that the more we, the more mature we grow in Christ, and more clearly we recognize His presence, the more aware we should be of our own sinfulness. Mm. Isn't that beautiful. That the National Museum in Washington has the big painting of Daniel the Lion's mm-hmm. Den, the world famous one. It's the size of a wall. It is absolutely astounding, and I absolutely love that painting because. Here's Daniel confidently praying to the Lord, serene, while these lions are going, what's going on? You know, I'm hungry, but there's nothing here to eat. I mean, literally, uh, the Lord took care of him in that circumstance, and I admire that picture a lot. Yeah, Daniel is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I will say, when you look at chapter 2, and Nebuchadnezzar is on top of the roof, and he's talking about, isn't this my mighty Babylon that I've made with my mighty hands? And it says, no sooner had the words left his mouth, and God had sent him in the field, and he became a beast. Or you've got, I think it's chapter 5, this disembodied hand that begins to write on the wall, that's the prophecy of the death of the king. I'm out of there at that point. When that hand shows up, you don't watch anymore. You run. Exactly. (laughs) I was recently told that Jesus' mother, Mary, never had any other children that the half brothers were actually from the family member of Joseph's that she ended up with due to the customs of the times. Is this true? There is no historical evidence that any of us know of that would say that. What happened is, is that in Catholicism, it became a part of the tradition 
So it was passed down verbally, whether that was true or not. But in terms of do we have actually documented in evidence or anything in the Bible? No. Yeah. It just says his half-brothers. Yeah. It, it says Jesus' brothers and sisters. Yeah. And so we take that in the normal um, plain English to mean after Joseph and Mary, after Mary gave birth to, Joseph, uh, to Jesus, then actually it says in Matthew that that Joseph knew Mary not until she gave birth to right. her firstborn son. Right. So I think after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had normal yeah. sexual relations, and Jesus had literal brothers and sisters. Catholicism, like you said, wants to uh, have something called the perpetual virginity of Mary, mm-hmm. that she never had sex, and therefore the Catholics would say, well, it, it, it brothers and sisters in that verse really means Cousins. Cousins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what impresses me the most, though, is think growing up in that household. <laughs> think <laughs> right? of being Jude or being James or one of the brothers or sisters, and you constantly hear mom and dad say, why can't you be like your big brother Jesus? <laughs> that would be a tough one. That would be a tough one. And yet they became leaders of the church. Absolutely. That's that. what impresses me more than anything else in the Bible, because I grew up with a brother I love dearly, but he certainly wasn't God, and I'm certainly not going to go to battle for him. <laughs> It's an interesting question. I'll probably want to deal with this on my recovery show on weekends called Real Recovery, Sundays at 5. A little commercial there for all my listeners. And then uh, it says that years ago, there was a newspaper article on wet houses where people sadly could drink themselves to death as they refused or failed multiple treatment stints. It keeps them off dangerous streets and from constant ER visits. I've never heard a Christian perspective on this. Sounds Sounds terrible. Yeah, it sounds rough. Yeah, it's very sad. It's called giving up. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard stories like that on Real Recovery ever? I've never heard of this. I've never heard of anyone that's gone to a wet house because I think that's a final destination place. Yeah, right. You just are in a safe environment where you can continue to drink because you can't stop and you're not going to hurt yourself or end up in ER. Mm. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'd want to kick that around for a while. That's an interesting yeah. idea. I'd, I'd want to sure. kick it right out of the studio, Bill. Really? Right out of the studio. Yeah, with that gruff voice you're using right yeah. now? Yes. <laughs> Sometimes you got to yeah. get tough with people, Bill. Tom is also the voice of McGruff, the, the crime dog. <laughs> <laughs> that explains a lot. That does explain a lot. Indeed, yeah. Take a bite out of crime. <laughs> but you think about the world. When, when you don't have the power of prayer, when you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit, when you don't have the power of the Word of God bringing healing to people, um, this is one mm-hmm. of the best things the world can do. And, and I'm not critical of them. That's about as far as they can go. They're trying to keep people safe and keep them out of trouble and keep them from getting hurt. But the point is, from the Christian perspective, we not only want to do that, we want to go the next step and also help them become healed and whole citizens again, if at all possible, through the power of Jesus. Indeed. I like that. Um, still coming in. Great questions here. What are the Bible verses that support female deacons? What are the verses that lean away from having female deacons? What is a deacon, and how does having that title change one's role in the church? Great questions. Deacons mean servant, and the, the, the sadly, it's the, they're the same verses. And the question is, are they talking about deaconesses, women uh, deacons, or are they talking about deacons' wives? And there, I would, again, I'd go to the ESV Study Bible, look at the bottom. It'll give you both views, and then it'll, it won't, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, that's why I like these kinds of things, because that's, that's a tough one. It is, yeah. If you want to engage that conversation, it, it obviously then begins to expand outside of deacon and deaconesses, right? I mean, we're talking about what is the role of women in ministry. That's certainly going to escape the remaining time that we have here, but 
it, there, there's compelling views on either side. I mean, I, I know for sure, and we talk about it in my classes when we start talking and really dive into these passages where I'll say, you know, you can have one exegetical giant come walking into the room, look at certain passages of Scripture and say that Scripture is authoritative and it does not allow for women in ministry. And then you could applaud them and they could walk out of the room. And then you bring in another person who is an exegetical giant looking at the very same passages of Scripture, wants to stay faithful to Scripture, is not interested in liberalism in the United States or even what the United States is doing or anything along those lines, just trying to stay faithful to the Scripture and will say, I do believe that women actually can be supported in ministry uh, through an interpretation of Scripture. So you might have N.T. Wright on one side, you have John Piper on the other, and both of them looking at the text, both to say the text is authoritative and inspired, right. coming to different conclusions. It turns out to be a fascinating study back and forth. And, I agree, and I agree that is an issue on so many issues. But one thing I would add, I would also ask the question, how has the church understood this for 2,000 years? And that depends on your tradition, right? It, you know, well, certainly it, within... Uh, well, I, I, <laughs> you didn't have women preachers until about 1970 in the Lutheran Church. Sure. And, and in, you know, the, the preponderance of uh, church history is not for women to preach over men. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being part of Guy Talk. And I thought it was a lively, spirited Indeed. conversation today. And it was great having you here. Good to be here, Bill. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Dr. So Tim fun. Walsh is in the green room right now, and we had him on uh, this last week, and we were talking about some of the post-pandemic uh, problems emotionally and uh, psychologically, and we talked about the problems, and what we didn't really get around to was the solutions. So we're going to talk about that today. We're also going to open up the phone lines if you have an addiction issue. He is the vice, vice president over at Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge. He'll answer all of your questions. That's all coming up next. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.